Hey everybody, quick note here from Ulrich, co-host of Making Movies is Hard. Uh, we are doing a new thing starting soon where we are going to be having ads throughout the shows. This is something that we decided to do just to help keep the show going. This means that there will be no more paywall. All the episodes for the whole show, going back to the very first episode, will now be available for everyone to listen to. But there will be ads in the show. Just want to give you all a heads up. Thank you all so much for listening to the show and to our wonderful Patreon supporters. We're going to be doing some new things just for you guys, some special stuff to make up for losing access to the paywall. So keep posted for that. Got some good ideas coming. So I wanted to let you guys all know about what's happening. And yeah, thanks for the support. And we'll probably talk about it more next week on the show because this just happened late this week and uh, it was kind of a last minute thing. Anyways, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Brassell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. My first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, Tubi, Amazon Prime, all the places. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has directed two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently in pre-production of my third, Best Friends Forever. I'm a producer's rep, and I used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome writer-director Jade Halley Bartlett on the show to talk about making her first feature, Miller's Girl, starring Martin Freeman and Jenna Ortega. After that, we play another round of The Game. But first, Ulrich, how are you? I am well. I am doing well. Nothing exciting to report in the world of filmmaking, unfortunately. Haven't written anything since we last talked, which is like a bit of a bummer, but it was a really busy week at work, and then... It was, I really enjoyed the weekend. I enjoyed the shit out of the weekend. I had a great, (laughs) fun weekend. Watching the Niners win was glorious. Sorry, Uh, Sean, who decided to hate our team for no reason. But uh, that's fine. It's like if I just randomly said like, oh yeah, you know who I hate? The Atlanta Falcons. They're terrible. (laughs) I was like, no, (laughs) I don't have anything against them. I guess if he is really truly a, de- a Cowboys fan, there is re- there is reason to dislike. So that makes sense. Well, let's let, let Sean off the hook. Anyways, Niners won. It's all that matters. Super Bowl time in a couple weeks. That's great. I don't know. I watched some movies. What did I watch? I don't even remember. I watched some good stuff, though. I mostly just rewatched stuff I'd already seen, which is what I always do. Yeah, I don't know. Is there anything interesting for me to say, Liz, at all? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. Well, what you said was interesting. What you already said. You already filled the quota of interesting, I think. Oh, good. What's going on with you? Who is is signed on to your movie yet? I know every week it's exciting. There's exciting new things. So any any new news, any updates? We're waiting. We're waiting for notes from this production company that we really want to work with. I'm basically now at the point like you send it off and you're like, yeah, I feel great. They're going to write back and they're like, I love it. And then a few days later, you don't hear back and you're like, oh, they just haven't read it yet. And then a few days later, you're like, they hate it. And they're trying to figure out how to tell me they hate it. That's where I am right now. (laughs) I'm at the downward slope. And then we have a deadline of February 5th for the talent offer. So Mm. we still have a few more days till she gets back. So what I've actually done, which I've never done before, which is something that I feel like everyone and their mother has done, is I actually cracked open my my copy of Directing Actors by Judith Weston. And I've literally, this has been on our shelf for like 20 years. And I started reading it and I was like, this is amazing. Like this, I think that the key to eradicating all my fears 
of directing actors, even after two features and countless shorts and TV and stuff, maybe in this book, because it feels like she's got practical solutions for people like me. So that's what I'm doing while I'm waiting as I'm reading directing actors and I'm actually putting together a short to pitch because someone gave me an opportunity to say, do you have a short to pitch? And so now I have to pretend like I have one and put it together. Nice. It doesn't have to be the script. It just has to be an idea. So I have to come up with my full idea. So I'm doing those things while I wait to hear back from my movie. Oh, Rick. Nice. You know, one thing I did think of that happened. What happened? So somebody sent me a movie. They were like, hey, we made this the short film like with no money, like just randomly. We want to do like a real production version of it. Like, are you interested in helping us make this movie? So I watched the thing and it was like 48 minutes long. Oh, my God. And it's a political thing. And it's completely like auto generated. Like like maybe it was like somebody on a green screen or something but it was just like completely it was like really bizarre to watch it was like just constant it was like the story was told in news like clippings that like had been altered and like you know things that like oh and and the president said this and and that or whatever and like just completely like manufactured from from clips and i was like i don't even know what to make of this and then you know they're like got back to me again i was like hey this is like really long like this isn't really a short film like do you have a script i could see and then they're like yeah well i guess uh you know we do what we could with code i was like with code so like you this is all ai generated like coded out like this is not actually anything that was done with real people it was just like you gave a script into a, a, a program and then it made this like is that what happened like i'm trying to figure out like it's really yeah. bizarre i don't know i think i probably sh- i'm like I'm, I'm like really dubious of this whole thing i'm like really like skeptical but like i probably should just pursue it because the worst case that that'll happen is that it'll be like i just had some conversations with these people and like n- n- i don't lose anything but like the time to send a time. message you lose time. The time that is you lose. We are very yeah. different people. I love how you're like, I won't lose anything by pursuing this. And I'm like, why pursue this? What is the benefit to pursuing this? I, for and you? I had your voice in my head when I, as soon as <laughs> I watched it, I was like, there is no reason for me to pursue this because yeah. it's not genre related at all. I don't like what I'm seeing, you know, and then it's like I'm not a political minded filmmaker who wants to make political movies. Like none of this is lining up for me, but it's like, oh, but the chance to make a movie is exciting. It feels good to be wanted. You're being wanted right now. I get that. Well, and I've had other opportunities where like people have wanted me to do things, but it involved like immense amount of free work. And I guess this is probably also going to be that, but um, I don't know. Like, I think it's just like, I I get so excited about the opportunities, like any opportunity that comes to me, like I always want to say yes. Yeah. Oh, and something came to me last week. I actually said no to, and it was like good money. It was to direct a boxing event to like be the director of this, like, pay-per-view style like the technical director like in the booth like you're calling the shots i would i would have a technical director so i would be like the director above the technical director so i would be like saying like hey shot take camera this yeah yeah. that or whatever i took a multi-cam class that's stressful that is super stressful i've done it before but it's been a long time yeah and then like you know 
there'd be like interviews that I have to do beforehand. And then they would like be like, like, you know, edited into like the program and all that stuff. And it would have been today is the fight. And yesterday would have been the, the pre-interviews. And I was just like, like, dude, like I, this too, is a lot of not money. Not enough time of prep. Yeah. Though. Not enough time of prep. And like, I also have my day job that I'd have to like somehow yeah. scoot out of, you know, even though it's a slow week at my, my work, but it's like, I'd have to figure out how to like fake meetings, you know, or like be like, I'm not available today yeah. <laughs> wow. you know, for some reason. And it just was like, it was too much. I was like, I just really want to spend time with my children. And like, if this was a short film or a movie or a narrative based thing, different. like I probably would have to say yes. But like, since it was something I, I don't want to be a sports director. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, and like, I'm not really qualified. And he was like, don't worry about that. Like, I know you, I trust you. <laughs> We'll do we'll do a run through on Monday. I'm like, I don't know, bro. Like, this is obviously a big deal to you. You've put a lot of money into this. Like, I don't want to, like, say yes and then let you down and have you be pissed at me. Yeah, (laughs) so I get that. There was a lot of factors. So I turned it down and I felt really bad about it for like the evening. And then the next day I was like, I'm so glad I said no. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, that relief is amazing. Uh, Don't don't feel bad. Don't ever feel bad about stuff like that. So I guess the, the point of the story is. I'm learning to say no more, but it's still hard for me and I'm taking Lissa's advice and, you know, opportunities are shiny and beautiful, but like you also have to make sure that like they are right for you and they're not just a big waste of time. Well, I agree. And what also is not a big waste of time is supporting us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Patreon is a way for people who enjoy listening to the podcast to support us, to keep us going. $1.99 a month, only $1.99 a month gets you access to the entire back catalog of all the episodes that are not on iTunes right now. So it's like super amazing. We would love to see you come on board the Patreon community. Join us. And without any more delay, here's my chat, my solo chat with Jade Halley Bartlett. Thank you, Jade, for being on the show with us today. Can you, this is the hardest question of the whole time. Can you provide the elevator pitch for Miller's Girl? What a good question. Damn. No. Yes. <laughs> Elevator Pitch is, it is the story of an isolated young woman who lives in the deep South, whose parents are never around. She's fatted herself on 18th, 19th, and 20th century literature, which is inherently problematic. She feels quite unseen as an artist, and she starts a class in her high school with a a creative writing teacher who is also an author. And he feels quite unseen as an artist as well. They see each other first as artists and then as people. And then due to the their inherently problematic uh, concepts of romance, things go real sideways. I would describe this movie as a romantic horror. Amazing. How many days did you shoot? I keep saying 19, but I think it was 20. Here we go. Here's the question. Can you talk about the rough budget? Can you give us a range? I can. Under $4 million. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, I, I did just. <laughs> I'm always encouraged to press that and I encourage myself to press that. Is there a bottom end that you're willing to say under $4 million, but above $1 million? Would... Well, yes. Okay, yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the origin of the idea for yourself? 
Yes. So I was living in New York City. I had gone to an acting conservatory. This was post-recession, so 2011. And I was a bar manager for Broadway shows. So I was underground all the time. Absolutely miserable. Couldn't get a job. And I wasn't a writer. I, I had never, I didn't start writing until I was about 25 years old. And because I'd been an actor, I thought, I was like, okay, I think I can tailor a, a story around another person. And also like, what else am I going to do with my certificate of participation from an acting school? <laughs> so I called my friend Julianne, who I'd gone to high school with, and she's just an unbelievable actress, like truly, truly extraordinary. And I know her so well. And I knew, I knew her acting ability so well that I, I really thought I could build something for her. So I called her and I was like, if you could play any character, what would it be? And she said, Rhoda Penmark from The Bad Seed, who, if you remember, is a psychotic killer child. <laughs> and I think, you know, what's so exciting about Rhoda is that she's, you know, she was written at a time that I think, uh, and she's a, a kid, but like women's agency was not like, like women doing things that they shouldn't do was really terrifying for a lot of people. So it was made, you know, made into horror films. And so I knew that I wanted to write about the birth of a villain. And I decided that I would set it in the high school that we went to, which was really rural, like way out in Bumpup, Tennessee. And it was full of like, it was this really bizarre microcosm of really intelligent, very, very talented people. We had a really competitive theater program. This is in Memphis or outside of Memphis. I mean, Memphis is like throw a rock and hit the most talented person you've ever met in your life. It's like, I don't know if it's in the water. I don't know what it is, but our high school was way out in the middle of nowhere. We had a cotton field behind the football field. We had a cornfield next to the parking lot. And it was just this strange place full of these precocious, intelligent students, but also teachers. And we had a lot of young teachers who, you know, we thought were our friends. And we just, it, this was also in the early aughts. It was a different time. So I knew I wanted to set it there because it was such a strange place. And I was like, what is the worst case scenario? I didn't want it to be murdery, but I was like, what is the worst case scenario intellectually or emotionally? And that's sort of how this story was born. And I knew I wanted her villainy. And I, that, I, I, wish, I, I wish there was another word. Antagonist is the word I'm going to use. I wanted her to be, she doesn't start out bad, but she's so intelligent and she's so isolated that she's, she could easily tip one way or the other. And so when the bad thing happens... You watch her heartbreak and then you watch it metastasize into, you know, into something really terrible. And she kind of grows scales over her. I wanted her to sort of go through Kafka's metamorphosis. You know, by the end of it, she's a bug. And so that was the in the play. It existed that way. And the play also had the play was in a different structure than the film currently is. The short story came at the end. So you spent the first half of it in this romance that you don't want to want, but you're like, you kind of ship it. And then in the second half, this, the act two begins with the conversation where he tells her to rewrite the story. And you're like, why are you so mad? What is he so mad about? And then you're watching these characters sort of devolve and you don't understand. And then you get the short story at the very end. And you're like, oh God, it's so graphic. And like, it's just so graphic. And suddenly you understand your, your judgments of the characters are sort of upended because you get it at the end. So then when I was adapting it to screen, me too happened within that. And so I was like, I was like, oh, oh God, you know, I, I didn't, I don't have just one villain. I have two. And they sort of Jonathan's inability to see what he is. And the way I explore that in the screenplay was my inability to see what I had written initially. And so as I was sort of dismantling 
my internalized misogyny and all the shit that you know we were learning on the curve when the feminist movement like resurged and all of that like learning like do you remember, i remember being so gobsmacked when i realized that i say i'm sorry instead of excuse me like shit like that like i was like the fuck you know like jonathan's journey and jonathan's journey as a character his inability to see that is what it reflects my inability to see what he was and then beatrice became the real voice of reason that real voice that was like no my guy you're the you you did the bad thing like you're in the position of power yeah that's it that's god did that answer your question that was really long-winded <laughs> it did it did in more it was beautiful and it sounds like there were various iterations of this piece of art how long did you spend working on the play why did, why adapt it to screen and can you give us like a brief timeline of you know this year is when i started writing the play this is when i started writing the script the screenplay and then here we are this many years later, it's out in the world. Totally. So I started writing it in 2011 and I was really lucky. The company that I worked for, that I was a bar manager for, everybody that worked there was an actor. We were all like out of work actors. Some of them were working. And I had this group of friends there who very generously as like, even I think I started doing readings at like scene when I had three scenes and these actors, I'm going to say their names because they deserve Sean Thompson. Jen Ewing. Oh God, I'm going to find Tracy's last name. Tracy, Dana Watkins, and Alison Robinson were my cast. And they were so, God, they were so good. And they were so kind to just sort of like, let me workshop. And I built the characters basically on the backs of these actors who gave me so much. And as I didn't know that I wanted to direct then, but even while we were doing that, I loved when they would improvise. Like a lot of, I think of how I honed my skills as a dialogue writer was listening to actors sort of improvise between the lines. And those, so that was in 2011. I finished the script in 2000. I wish I could remember what month I started it. I, it feels like winter because I was, the show that I was working at was Seminar, the Teresa Rebeck play with Alan Rickman, RIP, Love of My Life. Mm. So it was winter. And then I think I finished it in the spring and we did, I, I had a theater company with a really good friend of mine, Anthony Pound in New York City called Monsterpiece Theater Collective. <laughs> and we had a director named Samantha Tellis who came in and directed a staged reading of it with those same actors. And then I, I was living on the West Side. I was at 156 and Riverside with my, I'm going to say my boyfriend, but we've been together for almost 20 years. So my partner, <laughs> Nick, we were living in this apartment on the West Side and our seat, we were on the first floor in this beautiful pre-war and our ceiling collapsed because like there was water running from the fifth floor. The ceiling just totally collapsed. And our apartment was like three inches of water through the whole thing. It was a nightmare. And I got a call from my acting agent and she was like, you have to audition for this role. And I was like, I can't because I have no wall space. Like, where am I going to do that? My apartment is in shambles. My life is in shambles. This was in summer, early, early summer of 2012. And she was like, get it together and audition for this role because it's going to be your role. So I did audition. I taped for this television show called Cinnamon Girl that never went to air, but it was directed by Gavin O'Connor and written by Anthony Tambakis, who's I think one of the greatest American writers ever and uh, produced by Renee Zellweger. And I got cast from tape, which was really insane. I'd, I'd never done film before. I'm, I don't know what the fuck to expect, but they flew me out to LA and the first person I met when I got into this casting office in Los Angeles was Mary Margaret Kunze, who produced this movie. She was a, a casting associate at the time. And we just like really hit it off. And they gave me this part and we shot the pilot for like four and a half weeks, which I thought was the standard. That's not the standard. <laughs> 
but Gavin and Anthony and Renee were so, God, they were so generous and they were so kind. And I was like, listen, by the way, I have, I wrote this play. I'm really a playwright. They read it. They were like, you have to adapt this to screen. And I'd never done a screenplay before. So I was like, okay. The first draft of the screenplay of Miller's Girl is like 168 pages long, <laughs> which is just obviously, as you know, insane. And all dialogue, all dialogue. <laughs> And so Mary Margaret and I got really close and she was like, by the way, I was, you know, I did the, by the way, I'm a writer. And she was like, by the way, I'm also a writer and I want to be a producer. And she ended up putting together a reading of the first draft of the screenplay. Renee Zellweger hosted it and read Beatrice. Wow. I know. I know. Could you just die? Also, like she's from Texas, like her Southern accent is perfect and she's perfect. I love her so much. And then Mary Margaret got, and Mary Margaret was like, I think she was maybe 22 or 23. She was so young. She got Hamish Linklater to read John, Ron Livingston to read Boris. And then Julianne, who I wrote it for, read Cairo and Elisa Samsell, who's our composer, who is my best friend from my little acting school, read Winnie. So it was just this like magical thing at Renee's house. And I was like, I remember that evening being like, oh shit, like this is like, like I can do this. Like I'm, I think I could really like be a screenwriter. And Gavin and Anthony and Renee, Anthony's sort of like, Anthony's my, my, my mentor. Like he, he really sort of changed the game for me as screenwriting. He is an absolute genius, but they all kind of helped me skip a lot of spaces on the, on the board. They opened a lot of doors for me and I, I, I was developing it. I think that was, so that was 2013 when we did that reading. And then Mary Margaret and I were just constantly trying to get it made, trying to hone the script, like get it down. I think we got it down to like, Mary Margaret is a, Mary Margaret went to CMU for dramaturgy. So she's like a fucking unicorn. Like she knows everything about everything about history, but she also knows everything about structure. So she's just like, she's my, she's my everything. I love her so much. Um, but she really helped me like kind of boil it down to what it, needed to be because on a, in a play you know you have to there's a lot you have to say but in a movie you can show it and I didn't know that I didn't know shit about movies and so she she just really helped me do that we got it down to like maybe like 130 and this was in also in 2013 I signed with my manager Henry I actually an acting manager signed me at that company and she gave him my script Henry and I've been together for 10 years over 10 years now and so he was really pushing the script, trying to get it moving. And it circulated for a while. And then in 2016, it got on the blacklist. Mm. And that's everything kind of changed when it got on the blacklist. Mary Margaret, we were just trying to find actors to read it, to try to attach an actor. We didn't have a director. And she sent it over to UTA. I think we were, I think she sent it to Margaret. I think, I think he's Margaret Qualley's agent, or he was. He's so lovely. His name's Jonathan. And he sent the script around UTA and then UTA called me. And that's actually how I signed with UTA was because Mary Margaret sent the script to this agent who is an acting representative. And then he sent it around and I signed with UTA in 2016. And A Point Grey came on in 2016 as well. And that really surprised me because they're com comedy, you know, like I had only predominantly seen them as comedy. But, you know, if you strip out the the funny parts of comedy, it's so sad. Like it's really, really devastating. So those guys have, they just have like a ton of pathos and, and generosity to them. And they understood, they understood what it was. They weren't trying, they weren't pressuring me to change it or deform it into anything that it wasn't. Then we tried to get this off the ground for like, I mean, how many years is, I don't do math. 2016 is what, seven years ago. Yeah. And so we had a pretty robust 
casting search, which was insane. And we actually, there was a director we had considered attaching for a minute. Mary Margaret and I had considered attaching because we were so young and like, I don't know, I just wanted to get it made. I didn't know. And so we were in a session with an actress who was reading for this, who was reading for Cairo and she couldn't quite get there in the scene. And I step, I like, it probably wasn't the right thing to do, but I gave her direction and then she did get it. And it was like, it was, it, it felt the same way it did that night at Renee's house. Like I was like, oh shit. And it was like this real sizzle, sizzle like crackles in the sky kind of moment. And that evening when Mary Margaret and I were sort of like discussing the session, she was like, you're, you're going to direct this movie. Right. And I, I, until that moment, I don't think I'd really considered it. Cause I didn't, I didn't go to school for it. I didn't, I don't know. Sh- I, I'd never directed anything. I don't know shit about directing, but she kind of spoke life over me in that moment. And I was like, I mean, yeah, I guess I am. So I went to Point Grey. I remember we went to Soho House in WeHo and uh, they were sitting at the table and I was like, listen, I'm, I'm going to direct this movie. And I thought they were going to tell me to take a fucking hike. And they were like, okay, they like nothing. They were like, great. Awesome. Love to hear it. What next? You know? And I think that their confidence, like, I guess my reckless overconfidence and then their confidence and my reckless overconfidence or or maybe that I'm just totally fucking delusional. I don't know. They they were so chill about it that it was like I didn't have to I didn't have to fight for anything. And then we just went from that point on. So that was 20 that might have been early 2017 or mid 2017. So then once I was attached as a director as the director, I started meeting a lot of actors in a totally different capacity. So yeah. I was going to places like are you guys are you in LA? Yeah. Okay, so like Mary Margaret lived in Silver Lake. So we would take these meetings at like Edendale or at like Blair's, you know, places we could walk to from her apartment, which was really great. Um, Cause you know, we were like young and like poor. And then I went to London and I met some actors in London who ended up actually becoming really good friend of, friends of mine, which was really exciting. But no one was like, people were getting really close, but no one was, I talk about like the wedding dress thing, which I thought was not real, but it is real. It is real. Like the, like when you, when you find the perfect one, you're like, Oh yeah, it's the one I had sent. This was maybe, I think we almost got the go in. We were going to try to go in 2021 high COVID times, which was, I mean, what, what a fuck show that was for anybody doing film, anybody doing literally anything in the world. And that was, that was not a go. I was living with Nick and Nick, my, my, partner and I were living with my, we fled LA in March when I think it was like March 19th that LA went into lockdown. We were like, see ya. I'm an only child. His parents lived in Memphis. My parents were in Memphis. We didn't know. We didn't know if it was airborne. We didn't know what was going to happen. We were like parkouring in and out of fucking love, loves gas stations, trying to get home and living with my parents and then trying to get the movie off the ground. That wasn't happening. And then in August of 2020, we moved to Georgia, to Cartersville, Georgia, which is where a really, one of my very best friends, his name is Robert. His family has like a feudal kingdom of property in this town. And Mary Margaret and I had been scouting this town since like 2018, 2017, 2018 to shoot here because they own so much property. It was going to be really convenient, obviously, because we only needed permission from one people, one people, one person. They also know everybody here. So there were lots of like, lots of like ways that we could get in and all of our locations would be a cart move. So I came down here 2020, my parents sold their house. I bought this, the, the interior of Cairo's house is my house, but I bought a house here. It's like a 164 year old house. 
And then in 2022, early 2022, is that right? Maybe it was late 2021. I wrote a letter to Martin and I was like, I would swim this across the Atlantic to you if I could. Please, please meet me. Like, what a fucking Hail Mary that was to the audacity to ask Martin Freeman to please talk to me. Like, who am I? But he did. He read the script and we got on a Zoom and we talked for like two hours. And he was so, I mean, I mean, he's Martin Freeman. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm like a super, I'm like a yucky super fan of Martin Freeman. Fargo, are you kidding? Like his, his ability to do accents. I don't know if you've seen the responder, but his like, Scouse accent is, um, he's just, I don't know. He's he like Martin, Mark Rylance and Daniel Day-Lewis to me are like, those are the top three boys right there. He, we spoke for like two hours and he just really understood what it was. And he talked about Jonathan in a way that he, he wasn't vilifying him. Like he, like he, he, Jonathan doesn't see what he is. And so Martin was not coming at the character as some, like Martin wasn't trying to comment on what he was like. Martin was seeing this man for, who he is, which is a, you know, a person who feels marginalized by his partner, who feels totally unseen as an artist, who is kind of vulnerable, like his vulnerabilities make him weak as opposed to strong. And he was just so generous. And he's so, he just asks such intelligent questions. And I don't know, we, we hit it off really well. And our chemistry was just insane. And so he got the movie greenlit and I guess it was either late 2021 or 2022. He got a greenlit we were still searching for the other actors. We saw all of the eligible maidens in the kingdom for Cairo. And there are some, like, I, I knew people were talented, but like, <laughs> oh my God, like these, these, these young women are, are really, really something. And they all brought something different. They all did things that surprised me or scared me. And they're all very like cool, chill people. And then I met Jenna and I had not seen, I had seen the fallout but I hadn't like this is pre-Wednesday. I really resisted watching the fallout because I thought it was going to be so bleak, but it's not. It's like that movie is so surprising and Jenna's very, very funny in it. And I was like, OK, and Mary Margaret, Mary Margaret's kind of like a savant, like when it comes to casting, because she worked in casting for a long time. She's got these incredible instincts. And she was like, you have to meet you have to meet Jenna. And I was like, OK, I mean, yeah, OK. And so we got on a Zoom and she just totally disarmed me. She was in between. I think she met us on a break. I think she was shooting like an Adidas commercial, something crazy. And she was, she's so busy. I think she was in Vancouver. I think she might've been, that's when she was on Scream maybe. But she said things to me about the character that I had never vocalized aloud. And so that was the wedding dress moment. I was like, oh. And she also, in the middle of, she was, she was like doing the scenes and Mary Margaret was reading with her. She stopped in the middle of a scene because she because the, the dialogue is obviously there's a lot of dialogue. She stopped in the middle of a scene. She was like, fuck. And I was like, that's it. That's the one. She, she just didn't take herself too seriously. You know, like she was she did it again and it was perfect. And she was so I don't know. She just I don't know. I don't know. I don't I, like I wish I could say what it is that feels right. And I, I would be hard pressed to find anybody who can explain in language what that is but it was it was the wedding dress thing mm. and so then once we got her everything started rolling we had Gideon oh my god Gideon I, I actually met Gideon before Jenna and I knew we met some amazing Winnie's I love Winnie so much like Winnie was like in aspirational high school girl because she's so hot but she's funny and she's kind and she's like what a babe um and Gideon oh my god I just died I loved her um, Mary Margaret had worked with her on the thing about Pam and I didn't know her, but when I met her, 
also the chemistry was insane. Like she just, she feels like, a, I mean, I'm an only child, so take this for what it is, but she feels like a sister to me. And she, and then she and Jenna met and their chemistry was insane. Jenna and Martin's chemistry was insane. Everything sort of felt like Mary Margaret and I were trying very hard to piece together like a family because we knew it was going to be, you know, we're going to shoot in summer in Georgia and we're in like, I mean, this is not, I mean, this is pretty rural where I am. So it's not really fancy. And we just wanted it to have summer camp vibes and for everybody to, to really feel good together and to create a family. So in our selection of sort of the cast and of the crew, that, that really was a big part of it. And then we got Bashir, who is so amazing. I think he looks like Zeus. I love him so much. He's just the most charming, intelligent, incredible man. His chemistry with Martin was so unbelievable. His chemistry with Dagmara is so amazing. And then, of course, Dagmara, who was the last puzzle piece to come in. <laughs> Beatrice is my favorite character that I've ever written, ever, of all the things I've ever written. She's, she says the shit that you, when you're in the shower after an argument, that's the shit you wish you'd said, but she says it in real time. She is so savage and I and I think quite quite feminine in a way that we don't really see women being very often. And Dagmara was in Norway, I think, shooting the end of succession. And Mary she went to CMU as well, where Mary Margaret went. And so Mary Margaret like pulled that thread and and I met Dagmar on Zoom when she was in Norway and we also just clicked. And then she came in and obviously, I mean her performance is like, get the fuck out of town. Like she's so she's so good. She's so good it hurts my feelings. And that's how, yeah. So once all those pieces fell into place, we started shooting in September of 2022. We wrapped in October 2022. And then we finished post, no joke, on May 1st, the day of the strike, 2023. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that created like a little bit of a delay in terms of the release, it sounds like, so that you can have the promotion. We're just going back. So this was an 11-year process of you dedicating yourself to this piece of art. Can you talk just briefly about, was this the main focus? Were there other scripts you were trying to get off the ground this entire time? And how do you build a sustainable lifestyle when you're working your butt off to get this project off the ground? This was, I mean, this was always a running thread, but I've been working as a writer in Hollywood for like, I guess, I guess seven, seven, almost eight years. I, my first really big project was also in 2016. I adapted a book called Mad, part of a trilogy. Sometimes they refer to it as Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know, but the first one is just Mad. The second one is Bad. The third is Dangerous to Know. And that was with Mike DeLuca, Johnny Pariso, when they were still together. Universal bought that property. And that was like a pretty big job. And that was really exciting. That kind of thrust me forward in a way that I hadn't been. I was also doing... Like I, I got a, there's a woman named Joanna Byer who I love, and she was at a company called Gamont for a minute. And I did, signed on to write Barbarella. Nice. Her, this was in 2017, I think. And I got, I didn't realize my lawyer, Matt Wallerstein, his father, who was also at his firm, Reps Jane, and they got me for real assigned like an OG cinema Barbarella poster that Jane signed. I could just die. It's in, it's hanging up in my house. And so I was doing, you know, I was working on like, at least for me at the time, stuff that felt felt fairly prestigious. And I've done several adaptations. Nothing has gone to screen that I've done. I did do a rewrite on The Turning. That was an Amblin movie with Flora Sigma Sunday, who is like so lovely and beautiful and an incredible photographer. But I did not get, I didn't get a credit on that. Nothing else has been made, but I was, did a, I've done several adaptations. I've done a lot of rewrites. And that's how I paid the bills. And, and I'm, you know, I, I consider myself pretty successful as a, as a writer in the industry. Yeah. 
And then, you know, getting this movie made, it's so weird because it's the first screenplay I ever wrote. It's the first thing of mine to get made. It's my directorial debut. There's something really kind of, I don't know, sweet and kind of woo-woo about that that I, that I love. Well, let's touch on a little bit about you and, and the various facets of your career, because, you know, you tell your story about being an actress. And then what's interesting to me is that you actually asked a friend of yours what would be the perfect role for them. Were, were you not writing for yourself? And then what happened in terms of that? I mean, I think we all understand how to greenlight films and maybe Julianne wasn't able to greenlight a film or maybe she wasn't right. There's a million reasons. But I'd just be curious whether you're still acting or whether you've just gone really found this 100% love in writing and directing at this moment. You know, I, I stopped acting because I wasn't like, like I auditioned for a while in LA and like, I'm not, I, physically, I don't, I kind of sit in the middle of the spectrum. Like I'm not very slender. I'm not, I'm not on the other end. So I, I just, there was, there were no roles for me. Like this was like the, you know, late aughts, mid aughts. And it got kind of humiliating after a point, like I was like, this is bullshit. And this, and it, it was very much about, you know, the content that was out there. And I think it has changed quite a bit, but I really divorced myself from it because I, it didn't feel good. And it didn't feel good to keep putting myself in those scenarios, but writing for myself, I did write for myself for a while. Like my, I have a sort of a, like a small canon of original scripts. I, th I think I have five, five full scripts, five and a half. The second project that I have is called Lesser Expectations of a Greater Love. And it's the book that Beatrice is writing in Miller's Girl. All of my, all of my movies kind of pour into themselves. And I, I did originally write that role for me, but I've aged out of it, which is fine. And Julianne also aged out of Miller's Girl by the time we were able to make it. Cause you know, we're, we're the same age. So I think acting, I would act. I mean, I would love, like when I was on the show with Gavin O'Connor, like that felt really special. Like that was its own, that was unlike anything else that I auditioned for. And I'm a singer or I was a singer as well. So like I got, that was part of that TV show. And I, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm open to doing it again. I really love acting, but acting and writing are so hard. Like I think directing is a fucking breeze. Writing and acting <laughs> are like bloody, bloody skills, you know, like they're, they're like, it's like, they're like, it takes blood magic to do that kind of spell work and directing. You have to, you know, directing requires a, a certain level of objectivity to get it done. So it is emotionally much safer than writing and acting. But yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I sort of told myself years ago that if I was going to act again, it would only be in my own material, but I don't want to direct myself. That's that. I don't, I'm, that makes me so squeamy and I'm so impressed by people who can do it. But the idea of like, telling an actor how to like touch me or kiss me. It makes me <laughs> want to shrivel up and die. Oh my God. <laughs> I want to go back. Sorry. You said so many interesting things before that. I'm, I'm just poking at a few things yeah, that I had questions about. You had the staged reading, but it was at Renee Zellweger's house. Like, was it filmed? Like I understand uh, the obvious utility of working with these actors and having these relationships. And it seems to be like a massive landmark moment for you in terms of you seeing your vision come to life. But in terms of like pragmatic takeaways, did you have like a recording of that that you could use for future actor meetings or pitches or financiers? Or did you have anything from that that you used? No, no, I didn't. Didn't record it. 
I mean, still exciting, still emotionally yeah. valuable, of course. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't like there wasn't. I mean, that's it was part of like, you know, what, what, the doors that Renee and Gavin and Anthony opened for me, like I didn't necessarily use that reading as a thrusting point for the script. It was more of a it was more of a thrusting point for me as an artist. Yeah. Still had so much work to do on the script because they read the you know, they read the one the like the 168 like they read the like the, the big boy no i no i didn't and i did it never even crossed my mind to because i because i didn't know how anything worked like i was such a i'm still kind of a yokel like because i'm a cave troll like i'm a writer who sits at her desk and writes all day like i don't i'm i'm still kind of learning how it works but i was i was really young like i just didn't you know i just didn't i didn't know i had no idea what to do so when Point Grey comes along in, uh, you know, around 2016, around the Blacklist situation, and by the way, did your reps put uh, Vi for you after the Blacklist? I mean, I know the manager kind of sent the script around, but I don't know how the Blacklist works. Uh, like after you're, after you're submitting, are you having people lobby on your behalf in order to get special attention from the Blacklist I, curators? I, I... <laughs> I th- I think so. I I was my th- this mad that other script was all was on the blacklist the next year. I also don't really know how the blacklist works, and I don't remember if I was with UTA before or after. I think I signed with them before it was on the blacklist. I think the lobbying to get on the blacklist is you just send it around. Like I think they I think your agents or your team just like sends it to a bunch of different people. But that also feels I also don't know how that works because I think the blacklist is supposed to be for unrepresented work or maybe unproduced I think it's unproduced but it's it is this vague process I agree where it's like they send it around but it's like what does that mean and how many people read it and like what yeah. are they doing but it sounds like it obviously created amazing buzz it generated and qualified for all that amazing buzz and point gray comes along you take this turn that you want to direct I love that they were so receptive to that because obviously you're the originator of this but contractually did you negotiate final cut were you saying i have to have casting approval like what kind of power did you did you enforce i guess from the position that you were in i tried to enforce as much as i could being a first-time filmmaker there's only so much they're going to give me because they didn't there was no proof you know like the script was the script but i mean i could have really shit the bed as a director you know and I, I, I did not get final cut. Um, as it, as I'm learning, I think it's really hard to get final cut. Like, yeah, rare. yeah. I did not get that. I did get. No, I don't think I had final. Did I have final casting approval? I don't think so. But they were, they were so like, everybody was really on the same page. Like the executives and the producers and and Point Grey and Point Grey and Good Universe are the ones that got it and the, and good universe ended up becoming Lionsgate, but this was before they were Lionsgate. And like, there's like Nathan Kahane and like Aaron Westerman and Josh Fagan and James Weaver, like were my, my point people. And they're just all like, they're, they're just, they just love movies and they love this kind of material. So it never felt like there was of course, you know, push and pull certainly when we got into post, but I think initially they gave me as much as they could safely give me. Yeah. To protect themselves but then they also agreed with you know they pretty much agreed with what i wanted so that was okay too i got i got almost everything i wanted it was awesome. like yeah it was really wild i'm 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 kind of like of the i like i like to just ask for what i want the worst you're ever going to get is no you know and then you can sort of recalibrate but i find that in asking for just asking for what you want most of the times people will say yes most of the time yeah <laughs> especially if you come at them confidently 
So just fast forwarding a little bit to marketing and distribution, you launch at Palm Springs. Was that a decision that the team made? Was that a specific goal for you? How did you know exactly how to market and release this film into the world? Or is that, did you just kind of hand that off to your teammates? We were, we were involved with it. I mean, there's only so much we could do because we're, I mean, we're a fairly low budget movie. And the fact that we had marketing and all was really great. I was really shocked that we got into Palm Springs, frankly. Like, I was really surprised to be at a festival. I was so thrilled. I don't, I didn't know a lot about festivals. Like, they're very cool. Palm Springs is amazing. Like, I mean, Palm Springs is the best. Like, that was really special. I think the idea for it to be the, you know, sort of the the world premiere at Palm Springs was really clever because it looks cool, you know? And we all got to be together. That was the first time I'd sort of seen everybody in a really long time. So that was really special. It was a total whirlwind. I think I was there for like 36 hours. It was crazy. And then as far as like the marketing went, this is a tricky movie to market, you know, because it, it's also tricky because you don't want to give it away. Yeah. You know, like I think figuring out how to do a trailer where you, that's enticing, especially when you have two huge fucking stars, but then while also not giving away what happens in the movie is, is really tricky. I was really excited to get that. The song that's in the trailer is called Burn by Daughter. And weirdly, I had written when I was when I was adapting this to screenplay, I was listening to their sophomore album a lot. And so that kind of was a real fun full circle, full circle little thing. Well, because I, I went to the Lionsgate website, right? I watched the trailer. I went to the And at the end of the trailer, it says for more resources related to the themes in this film. And I was like, like, this is so mysterious. What is the situation? And then you go to the Lionsgate website and it's like a smattering of different themed nonprofits. It's like, like even the impact piece is mysterious because you're like, oh, there's the Trevor Project, but then there's also like Rain Organization. There's a lot, all this stuff. Are you looking at this and when you wrote this to be an impact piece or is it just Lionsgate wanting to use this opportunity to support nonprofits and NGOs and, and organizations or uh, it just, it stuck out to me. I was very curious about that. No, I hadn't, I, I had not ever intended this piece to be uh, something that's like, it was just, I just wanted to write a character piece for this girl that I love, you know, like I really just wanted to like build a terrifying set of characters for her. It ended up, it ends up saying something. And I think what it is, what it deals with, a lot of people are, a lot of people have experienced, and I think a lot of people who did not grow up in Me Too, but experienced Me Too later, are understanding these experiences that they had in a new way that can be upsetting, you know? I think it can be pretty alarming. So I, I think as far as what we have at the end of the trailer is to, I think the conversations inside of the film are more nuanced than they appear in the trailer. So we wanted to make sure that people knew that we are, that we are aware of what the content is and that, you know, if, if it might be difficult to watch, then maybe this is not Mm. for you, which is I think, okay. And if it is like, we are, we are versed in what it, you know, we're we're like versed in these things. Uh, You know, I think me too has changed I had the I had a, the extraordinary pleasure of getting to meet and talk with Toronto Burke, who is like I, I you want to talk about fucking geeking out. I was like, oh, it's like beating Gloria Steinem. It's like I mean, she's a, you know, she's a she's a rights leader. Like, that's insane. She's so intelligent. And, and getting to talk to her was 
also really eye-opening. Like there's just a lot, I think that people who did not grow up in this movement are still coming to understand and we're still trying to learn. And I think having resources, I know it looks away, but I think it's important. Like, I think it's important to, because, because it, God, how do I even say this? Like everything is going to feel like something to someone, you know? And so I think feeling seen and feeling heard and not feeling like I'm a, I'm a, like a fucking creep pervert, like trying to be prescriptive about anything that's in this movie is important. That's a, I don't even know that that makes any sense, but I'm not, what the fuck, how, how do I even say what I'm trying to say? I'm, I, I want, I want people to feel safe watching this movie is what I want. I don't think it looks any sort of way. It's, it just, it struck me when, because we have to be vague about this event that happens in the film, but it struck me that even the, just like we said, even the promotional materials can't be too pointed about the evasive, the necessary evasiveness of your marketing. It's so interesting. It's like those nonprofits that Lionsgate is putting forth to support, which is wonderful are like very diverse. <laughs> like it's basically well, like, here's a list of like lots of cool places that you can learn about. Totally. So that's and what I want to ask about. Well, and I think the conversations that arise out of this movie, I hope like the conversations that people are going to have are going to branch out into things that all of those nonprofits hit, you know? So like yeah. people might watch this movie and be like, well, that reminds me of this instance that I had that isn't necessarily what happens in the movie, but it's something else. And they can, you know, it might be triggering. It might be my surface things, you know, like those nonprofits do represent basically all of the, all of the branches that could come out of conversation in this movie. I I think they were, I think it was kind of clever. Yeah. I come from impact producing. So it's also just something that I noticed pretty prominently. We're almost at our final, like six questions, which are pretty rapid fire, but I just wanted to hear We've had a few filmmakers on this show and most filmmakers, as we know, take five, 10 years, 15 years to get their projects off the ground. It's not an anomaly. But having gone through that, this evolution that you've gone through with this one project, where are you with the next long form project? And it's not like what's next, but are you willing, are you still, is your drive still there to put five, 10, 15 years into the next project? I mean, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, like I, you know, I would love for, in theory, if the next project I direct could be Lesser Expectations of a Greater Love, which is second in my canon, that would be amazing. Lesser is nothing like Miller's Girl. In fact, it is the antithesis of Miller's Girl. And I think people would be surprised that that is what Beatrice is writing because Beatrice is what she is. (laughs) I, yes, I'm willing. Yeah, I'm willing to take that time. I mean, it's so... I just sort of expect that it takes that long to get something made. It takes a long time to write, you know, like writing takes forever and then you get cast and that sometimes changes things. I wrote Lesser in like 20, I think I wrote the first draft in 2014 or 15. So I'm a really different person now than I was when I wrote it. Yeah, I'm really, I mean, I've been working on it for a while, but I, yes, yes. To answer your question. Yes. I would be willing to put that amount of time into it because it's so, because it can only get better, right? It can only get more fun the better you get at it, I guess. I'm, and just to you know, the reason I asked that question is it's kind of an artist litmus test, right? It's like you've achieved really massive success with your first project. I mean, even, I, I hope that you feel successful, right? I do. Good. <laughs> but then sometimes when people taste that, it changes their perspective of how they navigate the industry. And I just was curious how your perspective would change. 
okay, we have these final six questions. We yeah. ask everyone these questions. This past, you know, 40 minutes have kind of been the first question. So address it how you'd like. But what's the fir- first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? This one, Miller's Girl, is the first film that I ever made. I feel, I mean, I'm really, I'm, I'm really fucking proud of it. Like, I, I, I feel like there's, I don't know if it's like a distinctly, maybe it's not an American thing. I don't know what it is. I, I feel like there's this thing that we, maybe it's a, maybe it's a lady thing that we are not supposed to be. If we're really proud of something, it has to come with disclaimers mm. about things wrong with it or whatever. Like when we get a compliment and we're like, oh, I got it at the thrift store. You know, we can't just be like, thank you. I'm really proud of this movie. I'm really proud of the performances that are in this film. I'm proud of like how fast we shot it. Like I'm, I'm proud of what it looks like. It just looks like it. It just looks how it always, how I always imagined. I'm the score is like, score is so good. Nick, my partner sings the Buckley cover. My parents are in the movie. Like it's, you know, it's my, some of my best friends from high school are in the movie. The guy that Elliot, the guy that reads the poem is also one of my best friends. Like it's just filled with, it's filled with so much love. So like, even if I never, ever make another movie again, I'm not going to knock on wood. Cause I do want to make many movies. This was such a, like an anomaly of near perfection, the creation of this, that it's going to live forever. It, it will just live forever in my mind as, I mean, as my, you know, it's my firstborn, you know? I do know. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice or career advice, acting advice, any sort of advice that would be beneficial to our listeners that you've ever received? Ooh, that I've ever received. Or doled out. I mean, like, let's be proud of the advice you've given too. I, I would say the best, ooh, trying to think about the best, I, the best advice I've received was not necessarily spoken to me, but was shown to me by Gavin, Anthony, and Renee, which was to be kind and to be selective about who you work with. And kindness and niceness are not the same thing. Kindness is communication. Kindness is sort of the ability to anticipate the needs of others. Like kindness is um, kindness is the highest form of intelligence. Niceness is just, that's just social behavior, you know? So that was, that was really important. Like being selective about who you work with, even if it's going to make the process take longer, if you're selective with who you work with, you're just going to know, you'll just know more about what you're dealing with and you will have, I think, a much better experience. And then as far as advice I could give is to ally yourself with, if not one person, several people, but a, a person who compliments what you do so that you can move together. Mary Margaret is my on set, she was like my sun suit. Like she is like a velvet hammer. She, she can talk to any department she can do. She's an incredible writer, which also, and a dramaturg, like, but she's been my partner, my creative partner for over 10 years. And having her there, there are strengths that each of us have that fill in gaps for the other person. And when you can move through life, like creatively with a partner who, whose vision is aligned with yours, it makes things way more fun. It makes things so much easier. It keeps you kind of both on the ground about things, you know, and it's like, it's like having a touchstone. And I was able to, not just with Mary Margaret, but with like the actors that helped me originally when this was a play, like having people that will help you see your vision through who, who believe in you that you can also help as artists, like finding, find those people doing it by yourself is possible, but this is a lonely industry. Like this is a real lonely place. And it's, and you, it's a lot of no, you know? So if you, if you have somebody next to you 
while you're getting all of that no, somebody that's sitting next to you going, yes, but, or yes, and, it's going to be, I, I think, a much more enjoyable and, and, and easier process. Did you experience any really bad advice throughout the past however many years in your career? No. Amazing. No. No, actually, no. It's it's been it's been pretty pretty magical, I must say. What's your goal as a storyteller? My goal as a storyteller, I, I would I really want to tell southern stories. I, I think the South is represented away in Hollywood, and it's not like that version of the South doesn't exist. It does, but there's so much more to it than that. And the South is, you know, I think we're. At the South, I would like to I would like to be able to generate a, a conversation and a and sort of a view of the South, the way that people have about Gothic England, you know, like the South is so it's very spooky and it's very beautiful and it's very diverse and it's very rich in lots of different cultures. And I, I, there are there are. Yes, there are horrible things here. Tennessee is in timeout. But there are also a lot of really intelligent, incredibly creative people who love living here and, and who have rich lives here and probably have seen several ghosts. And I want to tell those stories. If you could go back in time, what's a piece of advice you would give yourself? Oh, Lord. I would tell myself question not to open a credit card in 2005. <laughs> I, would, I would tell myself, wow. I got, ugh, this is such a side. No, I got, I got, I, w- I would tell myself to get second opinions on medical stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I would get, sec- get, get a second opinion. I got put on this drug that made me really sick and I didn't need to be on it. And it was terrible. And I wish I'd, I, I really wish I'd had a second opinion on that. I like that. It's like the first time someone's given like really practical answer to that question. <laughs> People are very like, I would tell myself, I would, you know, it's like these kind of like vague uh, cheerleading <laughs> maxims that they would give themselves in 10 years ago. Our last question is, is making movies hard? No, no. I'm making movies is not that it's not challenging. I think hard, I think hard implies, uh, hard implies like intense labor to me. I, I think making movies is, listen, we are not, I mean, maybe there are filmmakers who are doctors without borders, but we're not, there's hard work. There's hard work like that. There's hard work like laborers who, there's, there's hard work that missionaries do. We make stories and we we tell stories and, and we kind of shine light on things. And I don't think that's hard. I think that's a fucking privilege. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. Arik, you weren't there, but I don't really think that I need to give you like a summary because everyone just listened to it, right? But I... Yes, go go on. What's what, what was like the major takeaway? The one thing from the whole conversation that you're like, this is the thing that was interesting. The importance of confidence as a director. So Jade Halley Bartlett had never directed anything like she doesn't have any credits on IMDb. She's done a lot of uncredited writing work, but it's also not on IMDb. So it's like you would really have to get to know her and her background to know how much work she's done in the industry. She's a creative force. She's done a lot of theater. Like she's incredibly interesting, obviously, you know, talented. The script was on the blacklist for a long time too, but just like the gumption 
to go up and say, I'm directing this, right? And to take this on as your first directorial effort is like beautiful. I thought that was really, really commendable. And she just asked for it. And sometimes that's all it takes. So that was my big takeaway is just like, ask for what you want. That's awesome. Yeah. Kudos to her. That's a really impressive thing to pull off to like direct a movie at this level with these actors as your first yeah. thing. So, you know, yeah, I can't wait to see the movie and, and listen to the interview. But it is time, Liz, for the game. Now, for all you people who've never listened to the show before, which hopefully there's hundreds and hundreds of you, this is something called the game. It's a segment that we do as much as we can it was invented by a producer eric toms and basically what he does is he comes up with like a indie filmmaking quandary a scenario a challenge for us to figure out so we we listen to these blind so liz has not heard this question before she doesn't know anything about what i'm about to ask her and she is going to be put on the spot to figure out what she would do in this scenario and then once She's answered. I'll, I'll weigh in with my thoughts. I have also not read this before, so I'm going to be reading this the very first time right here on the show. So here is the question for this week. You are on the last day of a 21-day action feature shoot. Oh, boy. That sounds like fun. <laughs> You're at the climax of the film where your two actors will be performing a highly choreographed fight scene. The two actors have been rehearsing for weeks, and it will make for an excellent climax of the film. The setting is a rocky crevasse. So you're shooting at a natural national park, a few hours drive from the nearest city. Who? I'm putting the ante here. I love it. <laughs> the shoot takes place at night. So you and your crew show up at, at sunset. About an hour into shooting, your generator fails. And an hour after that, your backup generator fails. You are now left with your lights off and your cast and crew looking to you for options. The nearest store is hours away and won't be open until tomorrow morning. To make things worse, one of your actors is getting on a plane in the morning for their next shoot and will be unavailable to reshoot for months. Do you wait until dawn and try and film at sunrise with a very tired cast and crew, knowing it won't make much sense in the film's timeline? Try and use the car's headlights as some sort of lighting source. Steal what food you can from Crafty, flee the set, and live <laughs> your days in the National Park, hoping that the financiers will never find you. <laughs> Other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Oh, wow. Okay. My instinct is the car headlights. And here are my concerns. I don't know a lot about color temperature, you know, but I would assume that car headlights don't have the same quality of light that a cinematic light has but i'm wondering is there a way to light it so that there's silhouettes at night and we do like an overly stylized depiction of this fight that are silhouettes rather than expecting to cut in on coverage of their face and and details of the fight and is there a way to treat it more like a dance and i i don't know this is vague to me because, again, I'm not a gaffer. I'm not a cinematographer. I don't understand color temperature. I don't know how horrific that would look. But I think that I like the idea of doing it with lights. And now that I'm saying that, I'm going 180 degrees in the opposite direction because I realize if both your generators have failed, you have a major safety concern now. And it's not about how it looks. It's about the fact that you're in a rocky crevasse and you're doing stunts. So never mind. It would be 
some iteration of doing it later because you don't want to be doing stunts while people are exhausted and you don't want to be doing stunts without proper safety and lighting equipment. So my thought is I'd have to scrap that day. Wow. I just went from like hopefulness to like shutting it down in the past two minutes. What would you do? Well, I just want to say a couple comments about this. I'm not, I'm not, I know I'm not, not like trying to be a, a meanie to Eric or anything, but like <laughs> there's no reason ever that you'd want to shoot a night fight sequence at a national park because the reason why you'd be at a national park is because it looks so beautiful and amazing yeah. and gorgeous and yeah. you can't see anything at night. That's a great <laughs> and, point. That's such a good point. And, and at an indie movie, you don't have the kind of budget for the lights that you would need to like light up a scene like that and make it look beautiful at night. Like you, you know, you would need like, like this wouldn't be like one or two generators failing. Like, like basically, right. you know, you would have to have like the most elaborate, like next level Hollywood generator setup to do yeah. this. And this would be like a big budget thing and not like, you know, yeah. I mean, he didn't really specify a low budget or high budget, but basically the, the way that this would go is like, if you were to have this night shoot, you'd have like massive amount of equipment yeah. and like, you would need like the ultimate catastrophe to happen in order for it to all fail because yeah. you'd have like backups upon backups. You'd have like three generator trucks, you know, like you, if everything would have to break in order for this to not work, you know? Yeah. And so I'm just saying like, like, let's say that did happen. You know, I, I would just, I would do a, I would wait until dawn and try to film at the sunrise and rewrite it into the movie for it to make sense because anything can be solved with writing and you can always do that. But then I would like basically try however I could to, reschedule this to like you know i do it later but i would try to like use that time in the middle of the night where we we can't do anything and and you know tie it together right so like maybe there is a little scene that you could shoot with like carla headlights in the forest to get you to the yeah. morning you know so like you, you shoot a little piece that gets you to the morning and then like then you shoot what you can in the morning before the actor has to leave. Hopefully you wouldn't be so foolish as to schedule their flight for immediately after the shoot wraps. But if you had, you just do what you can, you know? But yeah, rushing in these kinds of stunt situations is like Bad. never a good idea. And I've been in that exact situation before on the alternate. Like we were like basically at the end of our day and we were trying to do all the stunts you know, at the end of the day to finish up everything, we had like three big stunts left and our actor was sick and we're like doing the blocking rehearsal for like the, the action sequence and like he could barely move and he mm. just pulls me aside and he's like, bro, like I can work for two more hours, but after that I have to be done. And then I met with my, <laughs> my AD and I was like, we can't do this in two hours. Like, what are we going to do? And then we basically decided to like break and then, see if everyone could come back the next day for one more extra day of shooting. And like, we got like 60% of the crew back or 70. And then we just filled the gaps in that morning. You know, I think we actually took a day off. So we took a day off and then we came back Good. a day later. So that was like how we handled it. And it was, it worked out extremely well that we did it that way. And it was really, really smart. And we basically, what we had also done is like we re choreographed it to work in two hours. Yeah. Then didn't do it. And then the next day did the shortened version. We didn't go back to the longer version. We kept with the short version Good. and it was so smart because like then we, we had time to do the short version right 
rather than trying to rush the long version and the humongous stunt. We It was like a big practical effect that we had to do. Yeah. So it, it worked out really well. But anyways, basically, long story short, never rush that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I also, I, oh, go on. Go on. No, no. I just, I just stand by the idea of like, do what you can, but like basically have to plan to reshoot later. I, I totally agree. I also think, you know, maybe there were other more difficult things that needed to be front loaded in the shoot and maybe they needed the maximum amount of rehearsal time. But usually you or AD puts the hardest things in the beginning of the shoot. Yeah. Right. And so that also seems like a, a slightly strange scenario to be in, to be at like the most difficult climactic situation for the film on the very last day. So you could yeah. maybe there was unavoidable. But yes, try to avoid that. Yeah, you'd almost always do the most difficult stuff first. Yeah. Although on my movie, that's exactly what ended up happening, that we ended up doing the big climax at the end, which basically just because of set timing with with, a, with this and the way that the set had to be exploded, basically, mm-hmm. in order for uh, that to work. And like so we had to do the big bloody thing at the end or we just didn't have the money to be able to do it and then reset. It's like we got doubles of everything. No, not, not on our budget. <laughs> But Eric, thanks so much for the question. Everybody, what would you guys do in this situation? No one ever responds to this. I, we have never heard anyone give us their take on anything. I will still ask. I'm very hopeful that someday somebody will say, hey, here's what I think. But yeah, no, thanks so much for the question, Eric. And you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. I haven't checked in weeks. I don't know if we have a new review on there, but we should check sometime time soon. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They are an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation course, courses, contests, and of course, their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head on over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Jade, Hallie, Bartlett for coming on the show. Thanks to Zim, Anaya, and Camelia at DB for setting this up from Katrina Wan PR. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for handling all of our social media. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for simply being awesome. Thanks to you all for listening and talk to you all next week. Yeah, I buy that for a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially what I know that reference. I know it. <laughs> Good. I figure you would. <laughs> we say that constantly at our house. It's like the, We do too. All the time. <laughs>